The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark 11, 12 through 25. The word of God speaks to us. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is God's word for us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lizzie. Right, you guys can have a seat. It's good to be here with you. I want to take just a quick moment um, to honor and thank uh, the leaders that taught yesterday at our Life Together conference, uh, Brandon High, JJ Side. Uh, Steve Curry all did an amazing job. Anybody that attended that um, who is currently leading one of our small groups or is even just exploring that uh, precious real estate is a Saturday morning from 9 to noon. And the fact that you would spend that at that Life Together conference, I just want to thank you. One of the biggest needs we have as a congregation is more uh, community groups. And, and so the fact that you guys took that time to explore what that would look like, and if you're considering that, that, that means a whole lot. So if you missed that, um, I think all that content's going to be posted online. But anybody that did participate in it, I just want to publicly thank you and, and honor you. That was really healthy, and uh, it helped the church immensely. So uh, if you don't know me, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. We're continuing in Mark. This story is interesting, is it not? There's a lot going on. So um, I, I had a, a really... Um, it was really good for my heart to dig in these past few weeks. I, I am so excited about sharing, I think, what is happening in this story. So as usual, let's pray together. You for me, me for you, and we'll jump in. So Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for your life. In spirit, we thank you that you're here. Help us see the beauty and the truth of the gospel. And, and we just pray for your gift of presence, meaning we, we, help that you, we, we pray that you would help us be present. And, and in this moment, just have open lives, open ears, open hearts to everything that you have for us. Jesus, we pray this in your name. God's people said, amen. So I'm going to start by talking about sandwiches. 
my favorite sandwich, and I feel strongly about this, which is why I share it, is an egg salad sandwich. Yeah, that's the reaction that the 9 o'clock had too. And I'm just going to say, the older you get, the more you like it, which I think means it's directly tied to wisdom. And so just hang in there, and uh, you know, you'll just realize one day that it is just perfection. Uh, so the guy that gets credit for inventing the sandwich is a guy named John Montague. He had the title of the Earl of Sandwich. He lived in the 1700s. He was some British statesman. It doesn't matter. What matters is that he gambled to the extent that he had a hard time leaving the table. And so he was so hungry one day, but he was so engrossed in this card game, he called a servant over and he was like, hey, I want you to bring me a slice of bread and then put roast beef on it and then another slice of bread, and I'm going to eat it with my hand. And I just imagine, like, the heavens opening and, like, the room falling into silence and just thinking, like, why have we not thought about this before? It was a glorious moment. So his friends, who were all around and at these card games, they just started to order the same thing from servants. We don't want to get up and go to the dining room. We want some of that bread meat bread thing that the Earl of Sandwich orders. And that just eventually got shortened to bring me a sandwich. And therein we have the sandwich. I have a hard time thinking of a time sandwich sandwiches didn't exist. But there you go. A couple hundred years they've been around. I bring that up, though, because I have a hot take. And this is the hot take. I don't think John Monroe, uh, Montague invented the sandwich. I think John Mark, as in the author of the Gospel of Mark, invented the sandwich. Not the one that you eat, but the theological, <laughs> the, the, the literary device, which is the sandwich. And he, he gives it to us, not for the feeding of our stomachs, but actually to feed us truth about who Jesus is, right? This is what I'm saying, that there are these, we haven't talked much about the structure of the book of Mark, but if you read like a, a commentary, it's going to open up by bringing to our attention that there are these literary and theological techniques that Mark uses to, to highlight the, the life and the ministry of Jesus. That Jesus went about things in an order of intention to communicate some truth to us about who he is and what it means for us. So like the first example that comes to my mind, one of my favorite stories, not only in the Gospel of Mark, but just in Scripture as a whole, that's one of these sandwiches is about a man named Jairus. You remember it from Mark chapter 5. This dad had a daughter who was dying. And so part one, he goes, beseeches Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. And Jesus says, take me to her. And the disciples begin to lead the way, part the crowd, so Jesus can visit this man's dying daughter. Yet there's a center of this story, right? If you remember, there's a woman who, this little girl's 12 years old, and her death is imminent. It's, it's, it's urgent, and yet... There's a woman who's been sick for the entirety of the life of this girl. She's been sick for 12 years. She's been bleeding. And she has this faith that is a gift from God that says, if I can just touch the garment of Jesus of Nazareth, that I will be healed. And she does. She is. Jesus stops the urgent rush to visit this little girl and, and honors and affirms and, and heals this woman in a very public way. She's been on the fringes of society because of her ailment, and he, he holds her up as healed. And then we have this third part where he visits this little girl who at this point now has passed away, and Jesus just takes her right out of death back into life. 
There's three parts, but they're all connected. And we can see that there's a, a message there for us that, that is many things, but above all, that following Jesus is asking us to have faith. Faith like this dad. Faith like this woman who is struggling with sickness. Well, here we're coming upon another one of these theological sandwiches. And you have this strange occurrence with Jesus cursing this fig tree. And then he's going to cleanse a temple in the center. And then they come back to this fig tree. And there's this seemingly maybe disconnected teaching about prayer and a rich prayer life. But Jesus did these things in sequence very much on purpose. So what is the cursing of this fig tree and the cleansing of the temple? What do they have to do with one another? I'm so happy you asked. We're going to spend a few moments looking at that together. And like the story breaks down into three parts, the cursing of the tree, the cleansing of the temple, and then this final charge from Jesus, we're going to take them in that order. So first, a cursed tree. Again, let's start in verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. This is in the evening. And he looked around at everything, and it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so this is the night of the triumphal entry. Jesus has just entered Jerusalem, being hailed and worshipped as king. And then he goes into the temple, and I just want you to picture Jesus in the temple just kind of taking it all in. He's looking around at everything, John Mark tells us. And then on the following day, when they came back from Bethany, he was hungry. So Jesus is re-entering into Jerusalem. He came in once for the triumphal entry. He went back to Bethany. It's about two miles away. Now he's on, in the following morning. He's coming back in, and it's early in the morning. It's breakfast time. He's hungry. And verse 13 tells us, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not yet the season for figs. And so he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. This seems like an overreaction, does it not? Seems extreme. Jesus sees from a distance on this two-mile walk, taking about 30 minutes early in the morning from Bethany to Jerusalem. He sees this tree, which is a big tree, probably about three feet around. Fig trees can grow up to 20 feet tall and 25 feet wide. And this tree that Jesus sees is full of leaves. It's communicating to him that it's full of life. And so it was right for him to look at that tree and expect some kind of fruit. Mark makes special mention that it wasn't yet fig season, but commentators are going to bring up that even now, about five weeks away from when they would be in season, the expectation for somebody traveling is that there would be these little modules, these little baby figs growing that maybe weren't as sweet as a fig, but would still pass for a breakfast. And so Jesus approaches this tree that's communicating, hey, I have life to give through all these leaves. And then when he gets close to it, there's nothing there. And so Jesus says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And as Lizzie read, we see that the tree dies. And a lot of people like are at best or at a minimum, I should say, confused by what's happening here. And, and some people are, are really kind of bothered by it. 
And it, it is in comparison to other miracles Jesus does and accomplishes in the Gospel of Mark different. We've seen him speak to creation. We've seen him speak to fish and bread to multiply to feed people. We've seen him calm storms to, to deliver his friends on a boat. Yet those were miracles of rescue, right? We've seen him heal people. Yet here is a miracle, but it's a miracle of destruction. And we seem like this is out of character for Jesus. Jesus, why are you being so mean to this tree? Why not hug the tree, Jesus? Why not lay your hands on the tree and miraculously call out fruit? You could have done that. Is Jesus hangry, right? Is, is Jesus like, is Jesus merciful and compassionate and kind after he's had an adequate breakfast? But before that, it's like, don't talk to him. He hasn't had his coffee situation, right? I thought of this and I, I came upon other writers that brought this up. But to me, this, uh, this seems kind of like just an ancient version of the vending machine stealing your money. You know, where it's like you put in for the whatever, the Funyuns or the, the Gatorade, and then, you know, 75% of the time it steals your money. But every time I'm still just absolutely scandalized by it. And then sometimes I'm stupid enough to put another round of a dollar in, and it's going to steal that. Is, is this Jesus, like, shaking the vending machine in anger because it gypped him? No, this isn't grumpy Jesus taking his frustration out on a tree. This is great Jesus actually taking an opportunity to teach his followers something true that he is about to accomplish as he enters the temple. It's a perfect physical illustration of spiritually what's happening in the life of the temple and the spiritual leadership of Israel. And so Jesus curses this fig tree because he is providing for the disciples and us a a physical prophetic parable to understand what's actually happening. See, this tree was dishonest. It was a con artist in a way. It said from a distance, come and eat. I have life through these rich and lush trees. But when you drew near, it had nothing to offer. And Jesus, before he enters the temple, is taking this opportunity to say, Hey, what you're about to see me do in the temple is is what you have just seen me do with this fig tree. Just like it isn't giving life, the spirituality, there's a lot of activity. It looks like there's a lot of life, but when you get close, there's actually no real spiritual life happening at the temple, specifically under the leadership of the current high priests and scribes and Pharisees. See, Jesus knows his Old Testament. And he knows that in the Old Testament, a fig tree was used as a a picture, a parable of the people of God. Sometimes a a healthy fig tree was used as a picture of of God's promise and his desire for his people. And, And often... Books like Micah and Jeremiah and Hosea, again and again, the the fig tree that is diseased or not bearing fruit or unhealthy is used as a picture for God's people when they're far from God. Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel, the prophet writes. Listen, like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your father's. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Again in Jeremiah 8, 
verse 13. The prophet writes, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. So Jesus is calling to mind pictures from the Old Testament for his disciples to see, for us to see, to help us understand the state of the spirituality of Israel. And what I'm asking myself just before Jesus enters the temple and before we move on in this story is just personal application. In this portion of Jesus' teaching, I was reflecting on my own life and asking, hey, are there places, and certainly there are, so maybe a better question is where are there places in my life where I communicate from a distance life and health, but when you draw near, there isn't fruit? As I father my children, as I husband my wife, as I'm a friend to sisters and brothers in Christ. From a distance, does there seem like there's life and fruit for the glory of God and for the good of others? And when they draw near, though, do I find myself bare with nothing really to give? Or by the grace of God, are there areas that I can look at my life and say, yeah, there are the fruits of the Spirit. There's love and joy and peace, kindness. There's faithfulness, goodness, gentleness. There's self-control. All the things that the Apostle Paul wrote for us in Galatians 5. And where there are those areas, let's encourage one another, but then let's also be open and honest before the Holy Spirit and say, surely there's areas in our life where we are like this fig tree and and communicating life, but up close not actually giving that for others. And that's okay. We're not here because we're perfect, but we do want to be honest before God and before each other and say, hey, help me bear fruit for your glory and good, Jesus. Help me be vital spiritually because you are in me and at work. So in our lives, in our community group, in our church, this is what the story is about. Jesus desiring fruit from his followers. But there's more to this story. Let's look at the second thing. A cleansed temple. Verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons and he, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Let's stop there for a moment. So we, we need to get a picture of what's happening in the city of Jerusalem at this time. What's happening is Passover has begun. So Passover is the most important celebration in the life of the Jewish people where they're celebrating God's powerful deliverance when they were enslaved by Egypt that he moved in power and delivered them from that slavery, called them into a promise and a a place and to be his people under his rule. And so to celebrate the Passover, the population of Jerusalem in this moment has swelled to like seven times its normal population. Probably upwards of two million people were in the city at this time, and most of them visiting the temple. And so just, it was was not a comfortable scenario for those of us who don't like crowds. If you're feeling a little claustrophobic, it would be a challenge to be in Jerusalem. There's activity and people and hustle and bustle. 
And this is the moment that Jesus visits the temple. And specifically, where he's visiting the temple in this moment is a place called the Court of the Gentiles. So I find the ESV Study Bible so helpful. It's a great resource. And here's an image from that Study Bible. You see that area highlighted in red. That is the Court of the Gentiles. It's something like the size of nine football fields. It's huge. And it was, there, there were certain parts of the temple that only Jewish people could enter and visit. But the court of the Gentiles was specifically set apart so that everyone and anyone from all around the world could come. Greek, not Jew, anybody from anywhere could come those who sought God, who had put their faith in God, who recognized that the God of Israel was the one true God. It was a sacred front porch of the house of God, set apart for hospitality, to welcome everyone around the world to pray, to worship, to draw near to the one true and living God. It had a sacred, important purpose. And as Jesus walked into that court, did he experience any of that happening? Like, hard no. <laughs> it is a hot mess. There is chaos. It's like, it's like a, a collision of, like, the stock market floor and, and a Black Friday sale at Walmart and, like, in, in like a stock uh, yard auction. It is just crazy. And there's buying and, and trading and just commerce going on like crazy. There's money changers there. And there's money changers there because people carrying money would be carrying Roman money. And that money had the image of Caesar on it. But that money was no good at the temple. It was considered an idol because that had Caesar's image on it. So you had to exchange that money for temple money, which seems, you know, reasonable, right? Except that exchange rate wasn't so great. One scholar said it was up to 300%. Give me three of those Roman coins, I'll give you one temple coin back. What are you going to do about it? It's extortion. And who's benefiting from this was the religious leadership of the temple at the time. They were lining their pockets from the scheme. On top of that, you had people selling sacrifices in this court, which again, like, okay, somebody selling a sacrifice at Jerusalem in this time is, is fine and reasonable. Like, if I'm going to travel far, if, let's say, I live in Nazareth and I'm going to make my way all the way to the temple, I'm not going to want to bring a lamb or a pigeon all that way, right? That's not smart packing. I'm just going to buy that when I get to the city. And yet, same scenario. This is why Jesus says, you den of robbers, right? Those animals' sacrifices are being sold at an unfair rate, way higher. And that's particularly why you see Jesus. Why does he pick to, to throw the chairs of those selling pigeons, right? Because people buying pigeons were the poorest of the poor. That's all they could afford. And Jesus is seeking them out, saying, you are oppressing financially poor people. He's irate. And on top of that, upcharging on sacrifices, dishonestly exchanging currency. If you look at where the court is there at that front porch, let's say I'm on one side of the temple and I, I need to journey somewhere else in Jerusalem on the other side. No, I could walk all the way around the temple, but that would add a few minutes to my commute. So I know I'm not really supposed to, but I'm just going to cut through the court of the Gentiles because 
It's not really important. So there was actually a culture among the, the citizens, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, where this sacred space where all the world was supposed to come to pray, to them, it was a simple shortcut. And so that's why it says Jesus was preventing people from carrying things through. They weren't there for any kind of sacred purpose. They were there just to save a little time disregarding those who had come to pray. Imagine pilgrimaging from just far away to come. You have faith in God. You believe in the one true God of Israel, and you're there to draw near to him, and you come to this place that's supposed to be welcoming and set apart, special for you, and yet there's this craziness happening in every way. Like, could you ever hope to have a clear thought? Or a sacred moment. I'm sure it was supposed to smell like incense, but there's thousands upon thousands of animals there. What do you think it smelled like? It was supposed to be filled with worship, but it's just filled with chatter and distraction. And so Jesus quotes in his teaching in this moment, Isaiah 56. The heart of God from the prophet Isaiah in verse 6. Isaiah wrote, and the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That was the heart of God, but the heart of God had been rejected and forgotten by temple leadership and the city as a whole. And Jesus is seeing that a place meant for prayer was a place of oppression, a place meant for for generous service was a place of greed. And Jesus is angry. And so in his anger, he cleanses the temple. And and this wasn't like a spur-of-the-moment losing of his temper, right? He was there the night before. He took it all in, and he prayerfully approached this morning, fully knowing what he was about to do. That's why he cursed the fig tree, to show the disciples, this is what it's about. This this system, from a distance, it communicates that there's life here, but when you get close, there's no life here, and it's missed the heart of my Father. And so as Jesus cleanses the temple... In his righteous anger, we see a new group of people are angry. Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. There was a couple of things that I was processing personally in light of this passage of Scripture. And the first question I was asking myself that I invite you to ask yourself is say, what does my court of the Gentiles look like? What is the place in my life where I want to make a sacred, hospitable, welcoming, serving place for those far from God who want to draw near and seek God? What does that look like in my life? What does it look like in the life of my group or family or this congregation? And 
I think honestly, I'm deeply encouraged when I think about that in the life of our congregation. I hear story upon story of people who want to seek God, who find you all as a, as a safe place to draw near to God, a hospitable front porch. And yet I know that, that in my life, my, quote, court of the Gentiles can be cluttered with maybe not extortion and greed, but maybe just busyness. Maybe with misplaced priorities. Might be different for each of us, but ask ourselves honestly, hey, what does this look like in my life as a part of the temple of God, his church? But the second thing that really struck me was this question that I asked myself this week. What makes me angry? What truly fires me up? What do I get really deeply upset about? I had a, a years ago, 22 years ago, I had a mentor in my life, and we were talking about New Year's resolutions, and he said, my New Year's resolution is to not be angry this year. And as an 18-year-old, I th- he was an awesome guy, but I just remember thinking, like, I don't know if that's right, you know? Like, I think it's okay and almost necessary at times to get angry, right? Jesus gets angry many times in, in the Gospels. He gets angry when his disciples don't let children come to him. He gets angry at the face of, of death as he stands at the mouth of the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And we, Lazarus, and we see him get angry here at what's going on in this court of the Gentiles. There is a right way that we see Jesus get angry And to sum it up, I think when, when, when people are pushed away or used, specifically when people are used under the, the guise of, of religion and taking the Lord's name in vain, just using genuine pursuit of God, when that's twisted and used to to take from people and not love and serve people. Like, we see Jesus get angry here. And yet, we see a totally different group of people get angry. And what are they angry about? These these false high priests and scribes, they get angry because Jesus is getting in the way of them using people. Jesus is angry because people are getting used, and they're angry because they're being threatened that their use of people is going to come to an end. And if I'm honest, I'm just thinking about ways that I get really upset. And do I get upset in in a way where it's righteous anger because God's heart is being missed and people are being oppressed or the poor taking advantage of? Like, yes and amen to that anger. May we as the body of Christ see things that upset us and as his body move to do things about that. And I think if I'm honest and if all of us are honest, most of the time when I get really upset, it's, it's not on behalf of others being used. It's because I'm not getting my way. And that seems a whole lot in a way that feels really uncomfortable, like the way these scribes and Pharisees are angry in this story. My comfort, my preferences, my power, my resources, they're being threatened And that makes these men so angry, they're dead set on killing Jesus. So may we pray to get angry for worthy causes. Lastly, and thirdly, 
we see a change, or excuse me, a charge, a charge from Jesus, a charge from Jesus. Verse 20, they passed by in the morning. This is the next morning. They passed by in the morning and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received and it will be yours. Let's, let's stop there for a moment. I, I, Peter gets a lot of flack in the, the gospel of Mark. And, and I, what I love that is Peter's the, well, what I love about that is Peter's the primary source of the gospel of Mark. So he's really concerned with being honest about himself and honest about Jesus. And he's not there to rewrite history and make himself look good. He's trying to reveal the truth of how glorified Jesus ought to be and, and how, how much he falls short, but Jesus is gracious. Yet, I just want to honor Peter here for a second because I suspect that Peter just remembered Jesus cursed that tree and he, he wanted, he so wanted to see what it was going to look like the next day. I think he expected that that tree was going to be dead from top to bottom. And so he sees it. He's like, Jesus, look, it's dead. I knew it was going to be dead. You cursed it, right? I don't know why probably, but it it happened, right? And Jesus responds to Peter in this interesting way. And what does he say? Have faith in God. And he goes off on this teaching about prayer, which seems kind of like off topic, right? Right? And yet, remember, why was Jesus ultimately, if we get to the heart of it, why was he upset? What was the court of the Gentiles supposed to be? House of prayer for all nations. Prayer was being disrupted. Prayer was being distracted. Prayer was being dishonored. And Jesus is saying, you just saw me cleanse the temple. Allow me actually now to to speak to your hearts and cleanse some things that can distract and disrupt your communion with the Heavenly Father. Doubt. And holding others in debt. I want to talk about faith and forgiveness and rich prayer. What does it look like to hear from the Father and share our hearts with the Father? What do we need to hold true? And he begins with those four simple words. Have faith in God that are profound and life-changing. Jesus is saying, hey, as you pray, remember who you are speaking to, the God who made everything out of nothing. What is impossible for him? Nothing. There is nothing you can ask for that is beyond his reach or power. And so he, he uses this proverbial saying, like, hey, just like if you were to... Throw a mountain into the sea. That's impossible, right? But it's not because nothing is impossible for God. When you pray, impossible doesn't enter into the equation. God can do anything. And I had a conversation, thankfully, yesterday with Seth Stewart, who's in this room, I think. And he brought up the rich truth that I don't think this is just applying to that proverbial saying, like, hey, Nothing's impossible for God, but there's some specificity when he says, say to this mountain, it will be cast into the sea. I think there's, there's reason to believe he's specifically speaking to the temple mount. Hey, disciples, you just saw this dysfunction and this dishonor and what 
this religious system has been twisted into to take advantage of people. And it seems so powerful and seems so permanent. But just watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the impossible. And I'm going to bring judgment upon it and bring it to an end. It's going to go to the bottom of the sea. And I'm going to make a way for people to freely, all over the world, to actually know the heart of the Father, to be reunited back with God. I'm going to be the ultimate high priest. I am the ultimate sacrifice. Unfortunately, I think this passage has been abused by people in a few ways or just mistaught by people in several ways. And the first is this. Maybe even when we're reading it on our own, we misunderstand it and we can read it and think, well, if I ever pray something and it doesn't come to pass, that means that uh, the problem is my faith and I haven't had enough and so I feel shame about that. But that's not what this passage is saying. But another way this passage has, has been twisted is that people teach in a way that really fuels our, our selfish, consumer-driven prayers where a prayer life can be presented more like holding God as a genie in a bottle. And if you ask him the right way, that he's going to give you whatever you wish. Don't doubt. Believe. It'll come to pass. Believe it. Receive it. Name it. Claim it. And that's not what this is saying. See, faith is not the only condition for answered prayer. We've seen Jesus encourage people in the Gospel of Mark that had the tiniest bit, the the mere embers of prayer. We even sang it today in one of our songs, in the weakness of our faith. You're good, right? Where does that come from? That comes from stories like Mark 9, where a father with a demonized, depressed son comes to Jesus, and he says, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if I can do anything. All things are possible for those who believe. And the man says, what? Like, I believe, help my unbelief. I've got a little bit of faith. Jesus, help me have more faith. And Jesus, what does he do? He's gracious and powerful and kind. He, he takes just the tiniest bit of faith, and in his love, he grants more because faith always and only comes from God. So faith is not the only condition for a prayer to be answered, which means that little faith or a lack of faith isn't the only condition that we can point to for a prayer not to be answered. We've got to look at the, the sum of the word of God. Like consider James chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Little brother of Jesus says, speaking to the early church about prayer, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. That verse kind of lays waste to any, like, private jet prayers we may have. I'm believing it. I'm going to win the lottery, you know, and God's a good parent. He's like, you don't need that. You don't need to eat candy for every meal. There are more important things. That's not going to be good for your heart. I know best. And as a good father, good fathers often say no, right? How about 1 John chapter 5, picking up in verse 14. The apostle of love, John, he writes this to the early church about their prayer life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. So faith is a factor in our prayers, certainly, but asking the right things, God's heart in God's time, is also important. 
Yeah, are we called to have faith in our prayer? Are we called to remember to have faith in God, that nothing is impossible for God? Absolutely. We're also called to pray rightly and to pray his will and to pray for his timing, fully trusting him. But the primary thing I'm taking away from from this passage that I invite us all to take away from is like, man, our prayers ought to be really big, extravagant, scandalous. Pray for revival in extraordinary ways. Pray for healing in miraculous ways. Pray for nations to be changed by the gospel. We're planning a church in India. So few Christians there. Hindu nationalism has such a stronghold, right? It seems impossible, but what? Nothing is impossible. So we can pray that there would be mass revival and and a nation captured by the glory of Jesus. That's a fitting prayer. And then lastly, quickly, and finally, when Jesus is talking about our prayer life, he says, It doesn't just need to be filled with faith, but also saturated with forgiveness. Verse 25, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. I find that portion of the verse inconvenient. (laughs) What do I need to forgive Jesus? Anything? Who do I need to forgive? Anyone? So your Father who is also in heaven may forgive you of your trespasses. Jesus is saying, hey, in in a fruit-filled prayer life, it ought to be standing upon grace that we've been forgiven by God. He's merciful. His mercies are new every morning, and it's insane to, to approach God upon grace, but then yet hold other people in debt when he has forgiven us. That is hypocrisy in the highest order. But I also want to be honest to to say that many of us have been sinned against in extravagant, horrible, unimaginable high ways, the depths of which people have hurt us is hard to put into words. And so I do not share this lightly, but I have to say that the the grace of in which we've received or by which we've received from Jesus is so high and so strong that that we have, by the power of the Spirit, the ability to to forgive, as Jesus calls us, anything against anyone that we hold on to. And there are things in my own life that that I can't do that on my own. I need the power of Jesus, but I also need the the support of community to process process those things and how I might do it in wisdom. And so you might find yourself like confused by that, particularly if you've been hurt, sinned against in, in deep and in hard ways. Like, don't hold on to that alone. Let a community group leader or a deacon or one of the pastors prayerfully walk with you as to what it would look like to obey Jesus here as he again and again calls us to, to forgive others as we've been forgiven. And this is just the good news of all these charges from Jesus. Like we, we, we just saw, right? How can we pray? We can pray according to his will. We can p- pray according to his time. Well, what do we know? I mean, there's some things that I pray for that I'm uncertain about what God's will is, but we can all be certain that he wants us to have faith and that faith to grow, and he wants us to be people of grace that extend forgiveness. 
So there is no governor or lid or ceiling on those prayers. We can pray in, in faith knowing that he wants to and is accomplishing that in us. So let's do that together now. Let's stand. We simply pray before you, Father, that you would increase our faith. We recognize that our faith that we do have is a gift from you. And so we ask for the gift of even more, that we would be um, people that stand on the truth that nothing is impossible for you. And that our prayers would point to and hinge upon, be built upon the truth that you can do anything. So we pray for wisdom to pray according to your will. We pray that our hearts would be your heart. And we pray that we would be struck again and again and again by the grace that we have in Jesus Christ. And that would strike us in such a way that we would extend grace in a miraculous way. Remembering that we have been forgiven fully in Christ Jesus. We pray this, Jesus, all in your name. Together we say, amen.